When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Helen's heart yearned after her former husband, her city, and her parents. She threw a white mantle over her head and hurried from her room, weeping as she went not alone but attended by two of her handmaids, Ethra, daughter of Pythias, and Clymene, and straightway they were at the Scan gates. 
The two sages, Ucalagon and Antenor, elders of the people, were seated by the Skane gates, with Priam, Panthus, Thymetes, Lampus, Clytius, and Hication of the race of Mars. These were too old to fight, but they were fluent orators, and sat on the tower like Kikalis that chirrup delicately from the boughs of some high tree in a wood. When they saw Helen coming towards the tower, they said softly to one another, Small wonder that Trojans and Achaeans should endure so much and so long for the sake of a woman so marvelously and divinely lovely. Still, fair though she be, let them take her and go, or she will breed sorrow for us and for our children after us. Hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am that host of yours, the woman who likes to rant, live. Fucking Helen, you guys. I am thrilled to be doing this deep dive into that oh-so-infamous woman of Greek mythology. She's one of those people that is so utterly fascinating. She herself is enigmatic as fuck, mysterious and baffling, and yet the things we know about her are often so straightforward. To the point, she's the face that launched a thousand ships. She's the woman whose beauty was enough to start a ten-year war that saw the destruction of an entire city. She is the reason for it all. Except that, I mean, she isn't. Not really. But we'll get there. First, what I quoted at the beginning of the episode was one of the few moments where we experience Helen in the work itself, the Iliad, and really shows how others saw her as really the cause of all of it. Before we dive into the story and history of this incredible and intriguing woman, a reminder that I'm doing a Q&A episode for the first Tuesday of January. This is the time to ask me those questions that pop into my DMs that I can't answer individually. If you have a burning question about any myth or character from myth, any play or playwright, episode-specific questions, if you want to know about podcasting or how any bit of the podcast works, if you want to know about careers and classics, that's something I get asked often this is the time to ask it. Go to mythsbaby.com slash questions to submit your questions and listen to the episode on January 4th for all my answers. I do try to limit Q&As. I know you all want new episodes, but they're perfect for this time of year when I both want to enjoy the holiday season and am working on an enormous and epic series of episodes that will begin the following week. Atlantis. Ugh. Atlantis, but more on that later. I even have fancy graphics that the incredible and brilliant Sarah Richard made for me. This is going to be the most researched and planned series I have ever done by far. It is going to be good. Ugh. Anyway, that is all to say, giving you a Q&A episode for this first week of 2022 is so utterly perfect for all of us. It's been a while. I know you all have questions. So just get on that. All right. Stay tuned at the end of this episode, too, because a friend of the show, Lisa Charlotte, who's one of the hosts of Sweet Bitter and has been on the podcast to talk all about Sappho, has been shortlisted for iHeartRadio's next great podcast. It's super exciting and cool. And also the show she's presenting for this contest is True Crime, which I mean, I fucking love it. So I will be playing a trailer for that at the end of the episode. 
But for now, Helen. A woman whose infamy is based entirely on the actions of the men around her rather than her own. But hey, that's why I'm here, to set the record straight. This is episode 148, the most infamous woman in Greek myth, Helen of Sparta. Helen was born in Sparta. For all she's referred to as Helen of Troy, she was born and she died Helen of Sparta. Helen's mother was the queen of Sparta, Leda, who was married to King Tyndareus. Now, Leda's story I've told before. She alone is infamous, and like Helen, not for anything she initiated herself. Leda was the mother of Helen, Clytemnestra, Castor, and Polyduques. Two were children of Zeus, and two children of her husband, Tyndareus. There are many versions of how Leda gave birth to these children, but the most famous of which is that she laid them all in two eggs. This comes from, you guessed it, Zeus taking the form of a swan in order to, as the old white men translators like to say, seduce Leda. In truth, like so many other stories of women and gods, we don't know much of anything about Leda's own thoughts and feelings on the matter. But given Zeus appeared to her in the form of a fucking swan, I think it's fairly safe to say that Leda wasn't an entirely consenting party. I mean, he was a fucking bird. Regardless, on the same night that Leda was with Zeus, she was also with Tyndareus, which led to this odd mass conception event. Now, I'm giving you this quick rundown on her backstory because it is vital to understanding her character further, but as I have told most of it before, I will be focusing on Helen of the War primarily because, of course, that is where all of her infamy comes from. But like I said, Helen was the daughter of Zeus, her sister was Clytemnestra, but the daughter of Tyndareus, creating a very odd dynamic between the two sisters. Helen is inherently special, while Clytemnestra is left to be simply mortal. The brothers' parentage is much less clear. Castor and Polyduques are twins. You've heard of them before. They were the members of the quest of the Golden Fleece on the Argo, and they're the twins from the Gemini Zodiac sign. One of them is almost certainly a child of Zeus, but who it was tends to vary on the source. Also, frankly, I hate saying poor Polyduques' name. He's Pollux in Latin, and oh how much easier that is. But regardless for today, we're not very concerned with these twin brothers, save for a horror show of a moment in Helen's life that we will get to soon enough. What we're concerned with is, simply, that Helen was a daughter of Zeus. And daughters, rather than sons of the gods, are a rare breed. As if Helen needed another reason to be considered special. As we well know, this divine parentage came with another trait that made Helen particularly special. She was beautiful. Perfect, even. Helen was fucking gorgeous from day one. Actual descriptions of her, though, are few and far between. As if it didn't matter what made her beautiful, or perhaps that her beauty be allowed to be universal and not defined by any one person or region's standards. 
But whatever the reason, we don't know much about what made her so beautiful. Just that she was. She was gorgeous and incredibly desirable. Which, of course, brings out the absolute worst in men, let alone men of Greek mythology. Enter Theseus. When Helen was, at best, 12 years old, and at worst, 7 years old, Theseus, in all his horror show of a self, determined that he should have her. Theseus and his equally horrible friend Pirithous decided, seemingly on a whim, that they should get themselves each a daughter of Zeus to marry. Either Theseus selected Helen as this daughter himself, or he won her in a contest against Pirithous. But either way, they determined that they would get this actual child for Theseus, by any means necessary. And then, once they'd accomplished this, they'd move on to the underworld to kidnap Persephone for Pirithous. Truly great guys. Of course, Theseus and Pirithous both succeeded and failed in this, as I've told you in much more detail in the Theseus episode, but it served to start Helen's young life off with a traumatic bang. If you're labeled as beautiful when you're seven fucking years old, abducted by a man who is, according to at least one source, 50 at the time, in order to become his wife, Things are likely only going to go downhill from there, particularly if you're living in the world of Greek myth. So Helen, as a young child, was indeed abducted by Theseus. According to some of the sourcing, she was abducted and then, thank the fucking gods, left by Theseus to, well, get a little bit older, while he and his friend distracted themselves by going in search of their next daughter of Zeus. Persephone. While the two were away, Helen was, thankfully, saved by her brothers, the Dioscuri, the twins, brought and brought home to Sparta, where she was allowed to have a bit more of her childhood years before becoming the Helen that we all well know. But we can only imagine how much of an experience like this would break a person, even a mythological one. Time goes on, and down the line, Helen finally reaches an age where it's socially acceptable for her to marry. Thankfully, though, by this point, Theseus doesn't seem to care, or more factually, Theseus wasn't actually invented in the timeline of the oral tradition yet. He'd come later, where they would then introduce a backstory where he once abducted a famous woman. Ah, the trials of navigating an ancient culture that told its stories orally over the course of many hundreds of years. In any event... We're at the point where Helen is now old enough to be sought after by suitors. Lucky her. Helen is still quite young, but now at least she's in her teens, when almost the entirety of Greece comes together to attempt to win her in marriage. But you know, no pressure. 
you probably remember the gist of this. Like I said, I really want to focus on Helen as a person and a person in the war more so than her backstory. So let's just say that basically all eligible Greek men came to try to win her. And due to some conniving on the part of Odysseus, Tyndarius, Helen's adoptive father, makes every man wooing her swear an oath that they will protect her eventual marriage. Protect it to the point of going to war for the future couple. The future couple, in the end, is Helen and Menelaus, who gets the bonus of becoming king of Sparta once he's married this Spartan princess. Agamemnon, his brother, had already married Helen's sister, Clytemnestra, by this point, and so between Sparta and Agamemnon's Mycenae, they've got a bit of a Peloponnesian dynasty in the works. And there are also two brothers who are cursed as the sons of Atreus. Helen has at least one child by Menelaus, though sources suggest possibly more, a daughter named Hermione. And so their lives go on there in Sparta, until one day a Trojan prince arrives in town seeking hospitality. Mm, Paris, Paris, Paris. This is where we get to the bits that people are often the most concerned with when it comes to Helen. So, we all know that Helen eventually goes with Paris, whether she likes it or not. As you'll hear in this Friday's reading episode, and as you all well know, this is because of the judgment of Paris, the silly contest between Athena, Aphrodite, and Hera, about who is the loveliest, a contest that is adjudicated by Paris for some reason. But... Does Helen go with Paris willingly, or is she taken? That is the age-old question of the Trojan War. How much say did she actually have? Of course, regardless, I don't think anyone could have guessed that it would spawn quite the war that it did, so I'm not placing any blame here, but the question of her agency in the matter is deeply fascinating and deeply up for debate. So let's dive into what we do and do not know about Paris and Helen's departure from Sparta. First, according to most tellings of it, Menelaus was away at the time. He was called off to some business on Crete, leaving the pair alone. Of course, not actually alone. They would have had loads of other people in the Spartan house, both free and enslaved. But Helen was left to be the head of the house, in whatever way women were allowed. And thus, she was the person determining the xenia of it all. Remember, Xenia is the rule of hospitality that was vital in the ancient Greek world, particularly in stories from their mythology. Everything comes down to Xenia, whether the guest was a good guest and the host was a good host. It's very much a give-and-take relationship, but when you fuck it up, you're in real trouble. Paris, just by visiting Sparta with this secret desire to run off with Helen, is breaking Xenia though no one knows it until the truth comes out. And not only is he about to spit in the face of his hosts by running off with Helen, but they also steal a huge amount of Spartan treasure. One thing I noticed when researching this is often Helen is described in the Iliad alongside the wealth of Menelaus as though she is part of that wealth, but also that there is a hell of a lot of gold and other treasure that is at stake, in addition to a wife. 
The two go off while Menelaus is away, taking with them so much of the Spartan treasure, and they sail off into the sunset. I mean, we don't know what time of day it was, but it certainly sounds better if they're sailing off into the sunset. Off they go, no matter the time of day, stopping en route on an island where, we are told, they have sex. Again, consensual? Tough to say. It's not clear one way or the other, but like so many instances like these, that could very well just be because the men writing the stories down, or telling them in songs, didn't much care how the women felt. The purpose was to explain the origins of the war, to exemplify Helen and Paris's betrayal of Menelaus. Some say they went straight to Troy, others that they wandered around Phoenicia for a while, still more that suggests that in the time it took them to reach Troy, Helen had already given birth to a child of Paris's? That would certainly be a long wander. No one seems quite certain how long it took, but it seems to me the most logical timeline is a fairly quick arrival in Troy with no child of the two. But still, we're asking the big question. Did Helen want to go? Did she fall in love with Paris and leave with him happily? Was this some kind of epic love story for the ages? Did Paris convince her to go, that she would have had a better life with him off in Troy? Did Paris seduce her using his handsomeness that seems equal to Helen's beauty to draw her in in an almost purely sexual encounter? Did that happen? Maybe Helen was willing to have sex with him before realizing that this meant she would have to leave with him because if anyone in Sparta found out, she'd be well and truly fucked? Or was it a straight-up abduction, a story of a horrible kidnapping and eventual assault by Paris? Like so much of Greek myth, it really depends on who you ask. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol the danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. 
Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In most of the very oldest sources on this topic, the question of why any of this happened typically comes down to simply divine intervention. Paris picked Aphrodite in the judgment of Paris, and that was the end of it. She promised him the most beautiful woman in the world, and she followed through. According to the work called The Cypris or The Cypria, which is one of the lost epics surrounding the story of the Trojan War, It was as simple as that. Aphrodite brought the two together, and off they went. The Cypris, though lost, is talked about enough that we know that it's basically about the origins of the Trojan War. It's named for Aphrodite, the Cyprian goddess. Meanwhile, in the Iliad itself, it remains pretty vague, with Helen only lamenting that it ever happened at all, rather than much of anything about her own choices in the matter. There's a moment where she's speaking with the Trojans, particularly Priam, and they're looking down upon the battlefield, taking note of the Greeks laying siege. Priam asks her to speak of her old husband, Menelaus, and asks her to tell him about the other Greeks that are assembled there. To which Helen replies, quote, Sir, father of my husband, dear and reverend in my eyes, would that I had chosen death rather than to have come here with your son, far from my bridal chamber, my friends, my darling daughter, and all the companions of my girlhood. But it was not to be, and my lot is one of tears and sorrow. As much as Helen's phrasing here could suggest that she's taking some kind of accountability, it's actually in direct response to Priam telling her that he knows it isn't her fault, that none of this is her fault, and that the gods are to blame. Meanwhile, the Greeks during and after the war do love to blame Helen. 
So what about the idea that Paris took her quite literally by force? A violent abduction that would then ultimately lead to a violent assault. That, too, is never really explicit. The idea of that kind of encounter has certainly emerged, but it didn't necessarily exist in the ancient world, or at least in the ancient sources that we have. Okay, what about Helen leaving quite willingly, happily, by her own explicit choice? That, in fact, does exist in at least one fragmentary source that survives. It's a fragment attributed to Alcaeus, but I'm reading it quoted in Bettany Hughes' book on Helen. It's noted in the episode's description. So the fragment of this poem goes, quote, And fluttered the heart of Argive Helen in her breast, maddened with passion for the man from Troy, the traitor guest. She followed him over the sea in his ship, leaving her child at home and her husband's richly covered bed, her heart persuaded by desire. This is a notable fragment, but to me, it sounds a lot more like the blame that we hear placed on Helen in the plays, like Aeschylus's Agamemnon, or even just in the references to her by the Greeks in the Iliad, who are always going on about how much better a husband Menelaus was. This idea that she just up and left her husband on a whim because a hot guy rolled into town. These suggestions are certainly meant to place more blame on her, but they can also obviously be read as simply a woman doing what she wanted. If you imagine Helen's marriage to Menelaus to be less than ideal, to not have any love in it at all, then why wouldn't she want to leave her home with this stranger, this beautiful man from the East who's come professing his love? Could she have foreseen a war that brought all the Greeks together against Troy? Certainly not, because the idea of all the Greeks coming together to do something like this was unheard of. It's part of what makes the Iliad notable in the first place. This idea that Helen went quite willingly and sometimes quite maliciously gets taken up by later poets, too. Apollodorus describes her as quite callously leaving behind her much better husband and child. And of course, then there's Ovid. His heroities include a letter from Paris to Helen and a letter from Helen to Paris. I won't say too much about these because you just know I'm reading them to you on Friday's episode. But Ovid certainly takes his idea of Helen to another level. Yes, he makes her leave willingly, but he does add a bit more depth to it and a bit more humming and hawing and calling out Paris for his failure to adhere to Xenia, to his insult on Menelaus for even showing up there in the first place. But, well, honestly, the letter from Paris to Helen is the one that's the really good stuff. It's, It's truly something else. You're going to love it. So sure, we do have all these varying notions on why Helen left and just how much agency she had or didn't have. But if we're sticking to the sources from those earliest days, those that surround the Iliad and the Odyssey and those works themselves, the main answer for all of this mess is, quite simply, the gods. It's all Aphrodite's fault. Because regardless of anything else, Aphrodite controls love. One could really blame Aphrodite for any messes that they make when it comes to love, but in this case we have explicit evidence that Aphrodite instructed Paris to go take Helen, that she may have even made him love her, and that she at least in part convinced Helen to go with him. She may not have made Helen outright love Paris, but she certainly made her go with him. It's rare, almost unheard of to have a woman's point of view when we're talking about these aspects of mythology. 
So often I talk about what we've lost, what kinds of women's stories existed, what did they tell each other behind closed doors, what did they believe. We almost never have an answer. Almost. Some say an army of horsemen, others say foot soldiers, still others a fleet, is the fairest thing on the dark earth. I say it is whatever one loves. Everyone can understand this, consider that Helen, far surpassing the beauty of mortals, leaving behind the best man of all, sailed away to Troy. She had no memory of her child or dear parents, since she was led astray by Cypris. That was Sappho's Fragment 16. We almost never have a woman's words on these topics, on the world of Greek mythology and their stories. Almost never! But leave it to Sappho, the single surviving women's voice from ancient Greece, whose work survives mostly in single-line or two-line fragments, except for a handful of fragments that are longer. And lucky us, one of those longer fragments talks about Helen. Everyone can understand desire, Sappho tells us. Even Helen, the most beautiful, left everything behind for love, for desire, led astray by Aphrodite. For obvious reasons, I find a woman's perspective on this idea of Helen to be the most telling. Sappho seems to agree with those of the period. She wouldn't have been too long after the height of the Homeric oral tradition, and she too attributes it to the goddess of love. But, like I mentioned earlier, she attributes it to the goddess of love more out of the love itself, which suggests that maybe Helen did love Paris. And if Helen did love Paris, was it only because of Aphrodite? Or are these things one and the same? Could anyone love anyone without the help of the goddess of love and desire? And if not, then does that add to the idea of Helen being to blame for it all, or does it take away from it? Separating these human emotions from the gods, at least in the time period we're talking about, is essentially impossible. The gods gave the humans these emotions, and without them they would be nothing. So in the end, can we still blame Aphrodite? Aphrodite may have given love to Paris and Helen in whatever way she did. But it wasn't Aphrodite who started the war. She didn't make Menelaus react the way he did. She didn't make Agamemnon determined to defend his brother through all-out war. Really, as much as everyone wants to know the background, wants to know why Paris took her or why Helen left, ultimately, the whole of the war comes down to Helen, but not necessarily in the way that we're often led to believe. The Trojan War didn't take place because Helen left with Paris, willingly or otherwise. It took place because of what men are willing to do in order to save face, in order to be respected, to seem as though they have control over their lives and their property. It wasn't about Helen as a person. It was about Helen as property of Menelaus. It was about the lengths these men would go to for the sake of their own honor. 
whether it's Menelaus dishonored by the loss of his wife, Agamemnon dishonored by his brother's embarrassment, or Achilles dishonored by the loss of an enslaved woman he abducted. The war and everything in it ultimately had nothing to do with Helen. Oh, beloved nerds, thank you, as always, for listening to this episode. Like I said, this was only part one. There really is so much to say about Helen as a character, and lord, I've only just got to her in the beginning of the war. Next week, the war and beyond. Honestly, I was never all that interested in Helen until I started speaking with more people about her and really looking into her as a person versus her as an idea. And that's where the fascination with Helen simply just takes hold. Because this poor woman is much more famous for the idea of her, the idea of the most beautiful woman in the world, beautiful enough to start a civilization-destroying war, than she is famous for anything about her as a person, let alone how she actually behaved and felt during the whole mess. But hey, that just gives me some fascinating episode ideas to redeem her, so I suppose it's not all bad. And speaking of not all bad, in fact, incredible and hilarious and wonderful. Like I mentioned earlier, on Friday, you will have the pleasure, the pleasure of another reading from Ovid's Heroides, the letters from Paris to Helen and then Helen to Paris. I say you'll have the pleasure because, oh my God, are they incredible, particularly Paris's letter. It is so much. He is so over the top, so unsure of himself. So sure of his own appeal and beauty, but what he's most sure of? Oh, he is so, 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 so certain that the couple stealing away together could not possibly result in a war. Never. Or even if it did, there's just no way the Greeks could beat the Trojans. No, it's not a problem at all. Nothing to worry about, according to Paris. No war to be had. Oh, Cassandra told him there would be a great conflagration? No problem. She's simply talking about the conflagration of love in his heart. Sure, Paris. Go with that theory. Anyway, it's incredible. It's hilarious. And I had so much fun reading it aloud. Holy shit. It's just priceless levels of unintentional comedy. Good stuff. I absolutely can't wait for you to hear it. I honestly wish I had a reason to just like record it again. It's so good. Another quick reminder to submit your questions to the Q&A, mythsbaby.com questions. And before I give you Lisa's trailer with her iHeartRadio information, let me just leave you with another wonderful and lovely five-star review. This one is from listener M.I. Laura D. in the U.S., Love the addition of the scholarly conversations. I enjoy the style of talking about the myths, but this year's edition of the Conversations with Scholars has taken the podcast to another level. I've saved several episodes to share with my students. I've really enjoyed learning more from your guests. Keep up the great work. This makes me very happy. The conversations are favorites of mine, too. Um, I am also still glad to hear that people like the regular episodes and that I get to have this comfortable mix of the two, which just makes it possible on my end, but also super enjoyable on your end. So I love you all. Thank you, Laura, for that review. And so here is friend of the podcast, the wonderful Lisa Charlotte, to tell you all about the iHeartRadio Next Great Podcast. 
Hi, it's Lisa Charlotte here from Sweet Bitter Podcast, and I want to share some really exciting news with you. Lungaway Zeko and I have been selected as finalists in iHeartRadio's Next Great Podcast competition, and we need your help to win. Our podcast pilot, The Murderesses of Cook County Jail, is live on their feed now. It's about the real-life stories of the women of the musical Chicago. We need you to listen and vote. We'll explore life in the 1920s, Murderesses Row, and the lasting legacy, not only in pop culture, but on the U.S. judicial system as well. If you're dying, get it, to know more, choose The Murderesses of Cook County Jail for iHeartRadio's Next Great Podcast. You can find us by searching Next Great Podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Please vote for Lisa. She is wonderful, a good friend, and a wonderful podcast guest. Thank you all so much for listening. Next week, more Helen. I am Liv, and I love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan... Millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. 
Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.